my voice sounds like a chipmunk for some reason. Mm-hmm. Sorry, folks. I don't know why I have high voice right now. It's hot all day, and the air conditioning does... I do think, yes, that the air conditioning and humidity are fucking with me bad right now. They're fucking with my skin. They're fucking with my sleep. Even with the... Even with the Aztec secrets? Uh, The Aztec secret is good for cosmetic skin conditions, but it does not do anything for my eczema or uh, oil overproduction, my allergy to my own self. Oh, I guess. Hmm. It doesn't it doesn't seem to harm them, which was a pleasant surprise. No. Yeah. We're talking about a face mask, by the way. We're into face masks over here now. It's apparently run by a mysterious woman named Susan who has no origin story. Like the Bitcoin guy? Kind of. <laughs> I don't know. Some lady named Susan and she's never in the office and you can't email her, you have to fax her. But do people know who she is? No. Or she's a completely anonymous entity except anonymous by the enti- moniker. Yeah. Discovered by Susan. And I'm like, that's the most terrible name. Like, that person is clearly running from some kind of law enforcement. So... I don't know. There's there's plenty of Susans, man. But does it say this on the packaging or... No, there's a Vox, like, explainer, like, where the fuck did this shit come from? And they're like, well, it came from Susan. Hmm. No one knows who Susan is. Yeah, that's interesting. It it makes me hate Vox more. I mean... Why do they write things about things like this? Aren't they supposed to be like a... We take ourselves seriously... We are politics as recline. I think they did in about 2014. And then they gave up the ghost on that one and were like, yeah, we're just going to do listicles. They're like, we need ad revenue. <laughs> we don't give a fuck. <laughs> Y'all want to click on this thing about some masks? All right. I do like the Aztec mask. I'm worried that it's going to clog up the bathroom sink. Yes. That's my primary That's concern. why I sloughed it off and tossed it in the trash. Yeah, I tried to do as much of that as possible, but sometimes you got to get in there over the sink with the water. And scrub it right off. Yeah. That's fine. So it's just some clay. It's fine. I mean, I did one of those ones that, like, makes it look like you're, like, going commando in the jungle. And, like, it's, like, black tar on your face. And you're like, all right, we're going in. And uh, I know what you mean, but I was picturing you with, like, the, you know, the predator style, like, mud on your face as a disguise. But also with no pants on. What? Double going commando. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's if you go to like the Dead Sea and you're like, I need to do a mud mask. All right. No pants. I mean, no, no. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, when it dried, I was like, this is potentially cancelable as an action at this point anymore. Like you don't see videos of like the peel off masks anymore because it's like, oh. Well, yeah, I think we talked about this. They canceled a Golden Girls episode for mud masks. Because it does look dangerously close to you know what. Oh, it wasn't. It wasn't that it looked like blackface. It's oh. what they said in the episode about like, well, maybe we're making his new girlfriend more comfortable. We look li- just like her. Oh, that's a pretty good Ooh, bit. Honestly. No, it's very bad. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Um, oh, so it was and wasn't at the same time. It like it was, was verbal. It was verbal. It was not image. Well, the image is part of the punch up, but yeah, it's like. Yeah. Oof. No. That's oh, clever. I like Sophia, that. Sophia, no mas. I mean, that would have been an okay joke on SNL like mm-hmm, seven years ago. No. Yeah, I think so. I, I think there was... Didn't Jimmy Fallon do blackface like, oh, I'm really sure. recently? I'm pretty sure he did. I think he did. I not, mean, we're old and it. Jimmy Fallon was on SNL like 20 years ago. He was literally... Ter- he was literally the worst at SNL. I don't know. He he sort of took over the like Adam Sandler role. Which which does sort of support support your point to a certain extent. Yeah. He was the goofy music 
guy. But like, where his characters were basically just him. Yeah. He didn't have a lot of range, and he was just there to be silly and also laugh in the background. That's what I remember. Yeah, about I don't. The break. He always broke. It was like cute once, and he's like, "It's my thing now." Yeah, his thing was I break every time, which is like, nah, bro. Which is like SNL's not funny. How's that even possible? I know. I mean, the Debbie Downer at disneyland or whatever that's a really good one i I do have to say that the time that jimmy fallon was on it him accepted was a pretty good period for the show i mean that was a golden era will ferrell didn't he have didn't didn't they co co co-host the desk with uh tina fey yeah oh that that was was good weekend update yeah 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 for sure Mm. yeah it all went downhill with Kristen wig that's my snl hot take not because she's bad but that was the era when it started to suck. When she was like the star and not just a supporting person anymore, it started to go downhill real fast. Well, when it was her and uh, Olivia Wilde's husband. What's his name? Olivia Wilde's husband. Oh, this is going to bug me. Jason Sudeikis. Jason Sudeikis. That's exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. That Where was a like, transitional big personalities. Moment. And yeah. they're like, can you not? No, there were too many big personalities at yeah. once. Well, I mean, the longest tenured person is Keenan. No, I know, which I which actually is, think is pretty cool. Wow. It just sucks that he has... Um, is he forty? Is he 55? He's been doing improv comedy since he was a baby. Well, he started on all that. He must have been a teenager or less. I bet he was a tween. I bet he was 13 or 14 when he got his start, and that was in the hmm. mid-90s. So, yeah, I mean, he's probably 40-something. Damn. Which is pretty crazy. I'm just sad that he has presided over the worst era of SNL. He's been on it for, what, like 15 years or something? 14? Yeah. and That's it, a long time. I know, but we're talking about exactly that threshold, 2005 to 2007. That's when it oh, was no God. longer relevant. Sorry, Keenan. But was it ever? Yeah, I think it was, man. I don't know. I think SNL really thrives on like the end of history. SNL was an important culture, cultural institution from like the 80s through the early 2000s. I don't want to blame it all on 9-11. That might just be nostalgia. It might just be nostalgia, I think it's mostly nostalgia. I think you're right. I think if I re-watched SNL now, I would hate it no matter what, pretty much. Although, like you said, like, yeah, the Debbie Downer at Disney World is pretty good. That's the only one. Yeah, I'm trying to think of it. Like, the last time I ever watched vintage SNL is, like, Hulu had that, like, Christopher Walken, like, set of all the best sketches he was in and they weren't good no because he was only good at jeopardy oh that's true and then he would just sort of do himself yeah i mean but you know what jeopardy was really funny sean connery and Mm-mm, shit i thought not. i thought that shit was good try and rewatch it now really it's an, uh, oh that sucks yeah okay i guess it's all nostalgia it's like when i told you i was like doing a deep dive into whose line is it anyway for for an evening yeah and you're like Huh. Some of these are good, but then it's like, well, it's scripted. And you're like, oh, it's just about timing. Oh, I'm not interested. Yeah, yeah. And I think I mentioned to you that they definitely did like ad lib some stuff, but it was a real punch in the balloon when I was eventually told that that all that shit was scripted. Because as a kid, when you think it's spontaneous, it's like really amazing. And if it was spontaneous, it would be. It's yeah. just that it's not. No. And honestly, when you really think to think back to whose line is it anyway, it's just Colin Mockery and to some extent Ryan Styles that were funny. Wayne Brady owned the eh, audience. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, he, Wayne Brady was charismatic, but I didn't think he was as good at the comedy. He, was he would always be the straight man or sing. That's he was right. the singing guy. What happened to him? Why did he not get christened as like... I thought he had a talk show and then everyone's like, no one's watching this. Oh, did he get canceled? 
not in the not, not in the not, not in the current, current sense, one. but I think it was just like no. I but he, I thought he had a talk show for a long time. Really? And then it went away. Yeah. Ellen stole his thunder. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Wayne Brady strikes me as the type of guy that would have ended up like on the radio. You know how Ryan Seacrest ended up basically being like a radio guy, huh. and he just like introduces songs and then takes calls from people and gives away money. Yeah. Wayne Brady seems like he's that was what he always wanted to be. Or did he do a, did he do a Family Feud? No, he did not. He would be a good Family Feud. Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, Steve Harvey's unbeatable. Truly, I mean, yeah. remember when it was the Home Improvement guy before he got super oh, racist? Al. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did he get fired for being racist? I think he he said some things, like what about people on the staff? I mean, you don't. No, have to... no, no. I think he just was like, "I love being a Republican, bro," and you're like, "Whoa." Oh, You're man. Richard Karn. If they fired him for being a conservative in the entertainment world, I do not support that. I'm guessing he probably did a uh, he did an oopsie of some kind, or he was just a conservative person and they found an oopsie that was borderline and it was good enough to I get mean, Al out of there. If they could stand like what's his face, Louis, who talks like this. Oh, Louis Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that guy is very ugly. Yeah. I'm just going to say it. Like, I don't give a shit. I know everyone wants to be positive or whatever, but no. No. If you look like Louis Anderson, you are sub-troll. That is a hideous man right yeah, there. Yeah, he is pretty bad. But, because you can't do the, like, old like old school game show host of, like, let me run up and kiss your family. Hi, Mrs. Whoever the fuck. Mwah. People would be like, huh! Well, we may have talked about this on early episodes, because remember, we used to discuss game shows kind of a lot, especially around the time that my dad gave us the uh, Rabbit Ears. Oh, yeah. Uh, when we were watching that game show network. I forget what it was called now. GZN or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, but, you know, back in the day... Game show hosts and the kind of like D-list celebrities that would always be like the panelists, in terms of the men anyway, they were like 75% closeted gay men. Well, that's just Paul Lind. Well, he's the most famous example and the best one. He was funny as shit. Oh, because he was hammered. Oh, he was drunk as fuck, but he was quippy too. He was good. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I genuinely think that. I think that like that was, for some reason, game shows were where you you could be sort of fey and theatrical in the 1970s. Richard Dawson was just drunk and, like, grabbing teenagers' asses all the time while they, you know, did the, like, the final feud or whatever it is. I mean, I mean, listen, people in in history prior to 1990 were always drunk. Yeah. So you can just, that just goes without saying, you know? I think there was, like, a quote where he's like, I don't remember taping some episodes. And I'm like, that's actually kind of amazing that you can still do it and just be like, all right, and we're going. Did you know that about Kelsey Grammer while he was doing Frasier? I did not know that he was like that at the time. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that amazing? Because the character is so the inverse yeah. of, a, I think he was on drugs too. Like, I think, you know, there's stories about Kelsey Grammer where he was fucked up so bad that he was like nonverbal, and then they'd be like action, and he would kick into Frasier, you know? Yeah, he would do a line and then just be like, all right, we're on. I mean, I don't know. After that, like... He would read his lines, do a line, say the lines. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Um, but I can't get that one picture of him, like, sitting at, like, his kitchen table, like, buck-ass naked, like, while possibly drunk. Do you know this picture? I don't. It's upsetting. I mean, he's not a good man, Kelsey Grammer. No. The even pre-cancel culture, like, he left his wife once or twice. I think he might have left two different wives, and I think he like abandoned his children. He was he like a modern-day Gauguin. He left one wife while she was like 
cancered. Oh, yeah. She was like a, a, what was that one? I don't know. I'm sympathetic. That's a lot of work. I mean. Okay. You're at um, your peak. You're rich. You're trying to have fun. In Minecraft. Canceled. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of uh, sounds. Uh, no, I don't. That I don't. Re- I don't fully remember all the details. Yeah, I mean, he's really lucky in a certain way that that all like made the news ten years or fifteen years ago, because now your career would be over. But it's sort of like what happened with Mel Gibson. There's there's a lot of like famous is it men, I think men it's in Hollywood different. where like as long as you got in a lot of trouble before the new era. People are kind of like, yeah, whatever. Because once it's a known quantity, you can't, you can't cancel somebody like five times. It can only really happen once or twice. Well, like Robert Downey Jr. got extra canceled, but just because he liked drugs. I think he was more of a liability to the filmmakers. Like, I think oh, people in yeah. culture loved Robert Downey Jr. Because, you know, his bad boy, like, young troublemaking persona, it wasn't like he was a creep. Yeah. It was just that he was costing film productions money by not showing up to work. Yeah. So his career ended when he went to jail because they were like, yeah, we're done wasting money on this guy. Huh. And Robert Downey Sr., his dad, probably his influence was waning. You know, his dad was a famous director. Oh, no. Um, so, yeah, I think it was just convenient to get rid of Robert Downey Jr. It wasn't because he was, like, problematic. Yeah, he was no. problematic for the money people. Which is... At the end of the day, the most problematic. Yeah. I mean, you know, but it, I don't think it qualifies as cancel. As culturally cancel. No, no. No. Yeah. I'm actually kind of surprised about Robert Downey Jr. that he's not more of a creep. Because even his, like, on-screen presence is a little... Sleazy. Yeah. Yeah, but... I don't know. Hasn't he been married to the same person for, like, 20 years? Yeah, I genuinely think it seems like he's, like, genuinely a pretty good dude. Maybe as a result of, like, going through some shit when he was young and kind of coming out of it a better person. I think there's some, like, millions of dollars of therapy that went into that. Yeah, maybe. I I also just think, like, you know, like, River Phoenix died in the mid-90s. Yeah. And he was, like, the same generation. I think there was, like, this... What did he do? He jumped in a river and then never jumped out? I don't know. I thought River Phoenix died of a drug overdose in a club in Hollywood somewhere, but I'm not sure. Who died swimming? Uh, Rasputin. I I wouldn't call that swimming. <laughs> not after shot and thrown in a river. It's not. I don't know. It, unless that's a new. It's like the breaststroke, but with concrete attached to your ankle. I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. Ah, uh, it's a. It might be apocryphal, but they say they found water in his lungs, so he was definitely still alive when they threw him in there. Yeah, he might have swam for a little while. Huh. Anyway, no, well. I don't. I don't know who died of swimming. I don't know who you're referring to. Hmm. But what I was saying was that. Like, Robert Downey Jr., I think there was a whole generation there that kind of died young. You could think of Kurt Cobain, too. I think, you know, Generation X really went through some shit, and you either died or, you know, got in trouble yeah, or, and just became a normie. Oh, and I think that's what happened. Yeah, because their boomer parents didn't, like, like them. Well, especially the entertainment types when your parents are probably rich, out-of-touch people that didn't really raise you and that's don't true. really care what you're doing. Well, yeah. Like, I don't know. The, weirdly enough, I think... Like, I was listening to an interview with Brett Easton Ellis today. Oh, boy. And, you boy. know, he's sort of the poster boy for all this stuff in a certain way. And He his, made the poster. What are you talking about? Yeah. I mean, you know, Less Than Zero is the iconic novel for, like, the period of time I'm talking about. I mean, that's set yeah. in the 70s, but the ennui mm. pervades that, that generation in their youth. Yeah. 
But anyway, yeah, his take on it was is funny because he's like, you know, now you would think of us as being like profoundly damaged by like divorced families mm. or like all the drug use or like having to be closeted or whatever. And he was like, yeah, that's not how we felt about it, though. You know, he's speaking for the entire generation. I can only take yeah. his word for it. But he was like, yeah, like nobody thought of it as necessarily a bad thing. It was just like crazy times. And then you grew up. Whereas yeah. now, like we tend, I, I f- find this tendency in myself, like we tend to complain about our lives a lot more. It's not like fun debauchery. It's like Medicated. really pathetic debauchery. Yeah. I think that's the millennial mm. standard. Largely because our childhoods were not that bad in general. Famously, I'd never had one, so I don't know. Yeah, you've um, always been old. Yeah, so I, I can't speak to that. Um, but I don't know. I think it generationally you have like we, our generation is more of a like, well, we could just like see what our parents did and then just never talk about anything or we can just talk about too much. Well, what do you mean? What your parents did? What are you referring to? I'm like, just like, oh, we don't talk about it's true dinner party rules. We don't talk about religion or politics or anything like, no, we don't talk about, we sweep things under the rug. No, thank you. Maybe that's a Catholic thing. Yeah, that's definitely a Catholic thing. Huh. I don't know. It's hard. To, it's hard to speak about generations in broad terms, I guess. Um, although we do it all the time, but no, I'm just I saying, say, I, is it? I'm just trying to identify like what a different, what a different tendency is from one to the other. Cause I do genuinely feel like millennials as we're coming of age, we are not transcending like a, uh, tumultuous time we are like growing into a more tumultuous time we're like easing into it like an ice bath we're like in, it's gonna be like be kind of painful but like it's, uh, yeah well what i'm saying is that we're not easing into it that oh. everybody is very on edge and anxious all the time it, you know gen- if generation hmm. x was sort of like numb and blase in their time which yeah. i think at least in retrospect is what the media or the culture presents as the truth they were also the first to be heavily medicated. Yeah, I guess, but it was in a different way. It was like people were like, "Yeah, just give the kids Ritalin. We just don't want to like look after them." Well, it was like Ritalin, and then when they got older and anxiety, they they would be Prozac. They were the mm-hmm. first Prozac generation, so it's like, "Oh, you cut yourself? Well, you're 16. You're on Prozac now." And it's like, "Oh, you want to have no feelings while your ho- hormones are raging? That's a terrible idea." Right, right, right. Like. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, I guess that happened to our generation to a certain extent, but it, you know, there was still Ritalin when I was in school. Not that I had it, but I knew people that were on Ritalin for sure. I knew one child, and he was he was the bad kid. Yeah, it was the bad kids. He, well, yeah, but he would literally like just spaz out, and it's like I don't think it's ADHD because it's like a little more angry. You know, when it's like well, a little more lashy outy. You know, I think a lot of these like. I don't know. There's so many sort of acute mental disorders, especially that are prescribed to children now when really it's just like children are children. Like, honestly, I'm kind of anti over categorizing these things. But when you say somebody's angry and a little bit ADHD, I'm like, they're probably a little bit autistic, too. Yeah. Like they just don't they just don't have the emotional regulator at the same time that they don't have like energy regulation. Yeah. So they're a little bit of both. But the ADHD is the major problem for parents because they need a break. Yeah. And then, you know. The autistic part, what can you do? Give them a train model. Kind of, yeah. And if you they're know? bored, yeah like, yeah. like, I think he was just bored. Yeah. Which, like, as a little kid, you're like, yeah, I don't want to sit around and, like, cut out shapes. Well, and it's already hard enough to, like, 
I don't know, come of age and deal with other little kids and wherever they are in their development. And then maybe you don't feel the same range of emotions or don't know how to respond appropriately. Like, yeah, sure. You're just going to lash out because what else do you know? Yeah. You go from like an infantile phase where that gets you what you need from your parents to where like that's just really off putting to other kids as they grow up and mature. Hmm. But yeah, I don't know. I think like drug wise or attitude wise, our generation is like Adderall and opioids. Yeah, and, how, and how'd you, that happen? You know, I guess marijuana is a component of every generation, but I think with millennials, like it was particularly pronounced because it wasn't as prohibited. Even when it wasn't like straight legal or permissible, it was not that hard to get and it was not that frowned upon. Like my parents were way more disappointed when they found out I smoked cigarettes than marijuana. They didn't really care about that. Huh. Yeah. Huh. Because largely boomers and Gen Xers all smoked weed anyway. It was yeah. like it was like you know the the the, the reefer madness concern is like pre World War Two history. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, they were all like, you know, akin to Summer of Love children. Like they were older than Summer of Love times. So like, Our parents. Yeah. So yeah. like the shit was around. So they were like, ooh, weed. I want to do weed. Oh yeah, and I mean the the 70s at least in suburban Ohio. Like I don't know that I know a little bit about my mom's experience growing up and it's it's similar you know she was like grew up out west so it was like car culture like desert roaming kind of shit but it was everything was still drug induced like my dad was into led zeppelin and pink floyd and all that stuff yeah so uh, that's what you smoke pot to i mean yeah yeah. um no i was talking when i when we were home i was like yeah i have this little cbd roller it it doesn't work i'm like was she (sighs) trying to get stoned off of it no, she, it was like a tension thing, and she's like, yeah, I rub it on my wrist. I'm like, no, 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 no. First of all, what you need is a tincture, and you got to put a couple drops under your tongue. She's like, what? Oh, yeah. I'm like, you're doing it wrong. The ones that you put on your skin can work. I mean, I've had that before. I think I think somebody down the street gave me CBD for skin one time, hmm. and it was great. But, it, but what it basically felt like was like icy hot without that artificial sensation, where like... It just sort of calms the area or whatever. Yeah. If your mom's pain, it, what does she have? Like arthritis? It was or like something? tension or something. I yeah. Like, I mean, oh, it's I not going to do It's anything. not going to do anything major. It's more like. Or she was using it to try and fall asleep. And I'm like, girl, not putting it on. You, you can't put it on your wrists. <laughs> you, yeah. No. That, yeah. You got to ingest <laughs> no. it. You're going to yeah. need to take, take some drops. I don't know what to tell you. I'm so sorry. I've been really thinking about getting, because a lot of the bodegas now sell the um, CBD flowers. So it's basically just like. The Oduls of marijuana. Yeah. I've been thinking about getting some. The smoke shop in Bushwick has it. Yeah, maybe I will then, because I really don't like the I wouldn't psycho- buy it at a bodega. Why not? Who cares? It's, it's all the same You're shit. You're going to get K2 and eh, maybe. Um, uh, yeah, then, hey, I could tell a story on here. That'd be fun. <sighs> yeah, of how you like walked to Myrtle Broadway and then walked around asking to eat people's brains. You got hit by the Mr. Kiwi food truck. Perhaps, or, you know... Just started laying on the Mr. Kiwi assorted fruits. Yeah, but anyway, I'm I'm into the CBD idea because I don't like the psychoactive effects of marijuana, but I like everything else about it. Hmm. So I'm really attracted to the idea of being able to like smoke a joint and not get high, oh. but get like chill, chill, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get high, but I want to get chill. Uh, mm, I mean, this is yeah. this is just how you know you're old, you know. At this point, it's like I am an old man. I don't want the effects of anything, 
but I want the nostalgia of all the things. Okay. Well, it's also <laughs> like, do you that. have four out? Well, you do, but like it's four hours at least. Depends. If you're but yeah, I, I get what you're saying. And it's like, what if you're like, oh, I just want to like get some nappy time in. You're like, nope, too high. Uh-oh. Yeah, that's always been the problem because it's like, I guess I'd be fine to smoke weed at night, but it's you know what? It's not even the duration or... Because, you know, I'm pretty functional on marijuana. I can still, like... It's not like being blackout drunk where you can't even take a shower or whatever. It's like, you're mm. fine. You can do everything you need to do. It's just more like, I don't want to have bizarre paranoid thoughts yeah. or, like, wonder if any... Like, the the constant recursion of wondering if other people know you're high is really exhausting. And I only mention that because it's like if you do want to get high during the day, which a lot of stoners do, you have to be able to interact with other people without constantly worrying about that A and giving yourself up at the same time. It's like you're constantly protecting like a a couple of lies, like the lie to the person and the like lie to yourself about your state of mind. Well, And, and that seems to take all the fun out of it. Like why do all of those mental operations at once? It's like, no, drugs are for being on drugs. And not worrying. I don't know how people do like are operational. Like I, I like anyone who wakes and bakes and then goes about their day. I'm like, how you do that? I don't know, man. It's it's been many years, but when I was a daily stoner, at a certain point, being high feels l- more like being sober than not. <sighs> and being sober makes you feel weird. It's huh. like any addiction. I mean, imagine how like frustrating it would be to go an entire day without nicotine. It's like you might do it every once in a while and it's yeah. okay, but like if you for whatever reason went through an extended period, you'd be you'd just be fixated on it. It's not like you really feel that different. I it's think just the a longest habit. was 3 days and then I yeah. just got cranky. Well, sure, everybody can do that all the time, but all I'm saying about being stoned is at a certain point it's almost like you're not high anymore. Oh. You are, but you're not. I, I really can't describe it. It's like So you're, you're chasing the dragon? You're definitely yeah, you're definitely high, but it's like you're just looking forward to not be you you're looking forward to the high waning so you can smoke again and then you do. And then oh. you're high again for a little while. And like when you're smoking a lot, it doesn't last. Oh. Like I used to smoke blunts, you know? You you should not be able to smoke multiple blunts in a day. And no. it, it wasn't uncommon to smoke like six. And I'm not saying I did the whole thing to the dome, but like you're with a group of people and you smoke a quarter of a blunt six times a day. That's so high. You're so high constantly. That's that's a lot. Yeah. Ugh. It just becomes normal. It doesn't, and that's the thing. Like I, marijuana doesn't affect your motor function. So if you need to cook, I don't you know still can that. do it. Um, well, I don't know. You're you never had this type of period in your life. I get slightly stoned and try and roast a chicken, and then I start to like dance with it while I'm rubbing it with oil because it's funny. Yeah, it's, it jiggles. Okay, if if you're dancing with a fucking chicken, <laughs> you are so fucking high. <laughs> that, there is no state of being <laughs> acutely stoned in which you're dancing with a wet chicken, with a wet raw chicken. That was a two milligram mint, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, it yeah. was great. No, no, it's no shade, no lemonade, but you're. Yeah, you're lightweight. So am I, because you don't smoke weed all the time. No. Yeah. I was also severely hungover, so I was like, oh, maybe not. A... Thought it was going to be an upper, like a, a leveler, and then was like, it didn't work, and now I'm dancing with a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. As a hangover remedy, it might not be that bad, but I don't know. It's just going to make you lethargic and sort of sloth-like. I mean, is that any What's different? What's the difference? I mean, yeah, it's not yeah. that different. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I hope that picked up. 
the slurping. I know what you were talking about. Oh, okay. I could hear it in my you, headphones. Oh, okay. Yeah. You nodded at me like, and then? Yeah, I was, hopi- I was hoping you would speak. Oh. Maybe say something of interest <laughs> instead of explaining <laughs> what the sound was that everybody heard. Well, as podcasts are famously visual, I need to fill in the, the reader on what's going on. Sure. <laughs> it's very important details to set the scene. You know, it's like Proust's Madeline. Like, all right, as I sat there at the table pondering the chocolate stain on the on the tablecloth i slurped my moscow mule loudly in hopes to find entertainment but only i saw i sought emptiness you know that but no? it, what you did is more like in a book if the word slurp was spelled out in capital letters with five s's three l's three u's five r's and three p's and then after that the next line was explaining what the onomatopoeia was supposed to be Oh, I wanted to use onomatopoeia first. Damn it. Hmm. Yeah, well, get smarter. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Did you just get good me? How dare you? <laughs> Fucking A. Jesus Christ. Sorry, I've been trapped alone by myself in a mm-hmm. 81 degree location for yeah days. So I'm a little... Uh, loopy is a word. And I learned today, I was like, I don't like working. Of course not. Nobody likes working. How do I do with... Uh, and, uh, and then I started going through this fantasy of like, Powerball is like 76 million. I'm going to start playing Powerball because I don't want to work. This is this is a slippery slope that's never going to pay off. Um, but... Oh, buddy, I do the lotto fantasy all the time. Oh. I was figuring out how many homes I wanted to buy for rental income. Oh, my God. So you're going to win tens of millions of dollars, enough for several generations to live on, on interest alone, and you're going to become a landlord with it? Just two places. Jesus Christ. (laughs) Two. Just two. Just two two spots. One nice brownstone. Uh Uh-huh. You don't want to buy these things for yourself. Your first thought is, how can I extract more capital from the world? (laughs) No, No, I would buy my home on the Upper East Side. Oh, God. Really? You realize how tacky that is, right? Like, I, I think mm. that you're... Um, I would love a townhome. Your sort of, like, old gay Manhattanite fantasies are a little out of touch at this point, I would say. It, it's like, it's beyond not even being cool to the point where... Oh, it's tragic, it's yeah. just nothing. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a little disturbing, like... It's that or, like, a historic... Like, do you really think that through? Think about that. Like, you're mm. going to live with a bunch of 90-year-old Jewish people... Uh-huh. And your friends are all hours away. Uh huh. Really? I would have a driver. Oh my god. Okay. I guess. I mean, I don't know. What's the attraction of the Upper East Side to you? Huh. You probably couldn't even. I actually with that with much money <laughs> get a place up there. That's true. Yeah. Um. But you could buy. You could actually buy Jeffrey Epstein's old place. That's probably on discount. Um. It's on seventy something Street, seventy fourth. Mm. That's right next to the park. Your no. short walk from the Met. See, if it was in the 80s between Park and Madison, I'd, I'd be intrigued. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so Will wins $70 million and then spends half of it on a property <laughs> on the Upper East Side and loses the other half on his driver's salary over the course of five years. Yeah. Along with a mac and cheese dispenser and caviar. Actually. I dude, I this is really what now. You, now my gears are turning. Okay, I no, guarantee but, you, if you won any amount, if you won any amount lower than fifty million dollars, you would blow it all. You would be one of those lottery stores. No, no, yes, you would. 
realistically, I would buy, I would buy two things right away up front: brownstone in Brooklyn, and then a home for my parents. Okay. And then pay off all my student debt. Yeah. And then anyone else that I knew that had too much, I'd be like, who wants to pay? Who wants some debt paid off? That's interesting. You know what? I, I I'd be like, fuck it. Let's just wipe all the slates. Let's live our lives. It's one thing to fantasize about that, and it's another thing to actually do it. But I've had the exact same lottery fantasy. I mean... Where you do the math, and you're like, okay, whatever you win, you're going to take the lump sum, right? So cut it in half, and then cut it in half again for taxes. Uh And a lot of the time, unless you win one of the big ones that's in the hundreds of millions of dollars, you're not left with that much money, honestly. It's still $40 million. What? If No. If if you won seventy million on the ticket, right? Mm-hmm. You're talking about thirty five million right away, just for the lump sum, and then mm-hmm. have it again because you have to pay taxes on it. Huh. And the taxes are forty percent or more. So just for easy math, you got to figure. Let's say twenty million dollars you have. Mm-hmm. Granted, like that's a shit ton of money. That's I'm so not saying money. it's not, but then but then think about this: you buy your property, mm-hmm. you have $2 million. to you have to set aside money to not only maintain that property but to pay property taxes oh, on yeah. it for the rest of your life. Mm. So take another five million away uh-huh. at minimum, probably yeah. more than that. Then you buy a house for your parents, same deal over there. So now your twenty million just went down to less than ten, probably. Mm. Paying off student debt's not really that big of a deal. You could pay off your own student debt and all of your friends for a million bucks, probably. Yeah. But then you're talking about you have like eight million or so mm-hmm. liquid now. Mm. Well, Which is it, not bad. I mean, you can well, live on that forever, but I'm just saying that like eight million dollars it, it, it sounds like a lot of money to a poor money, person, yeah. but you can really spend that much money, especially with a lifestyle like that. Yeah. Where all of a sudden you're not working anymore. You're probably gonna get used to getting people to do things for you rather than doing them yourself. You're tipping all those people that those services all get more expensive, whether it's your groceries mm, yeah. or your laundry or whatever. Everything goes up. You probably want a car wait, or two. Wait. You know? Why would I pay for laundry? I would have a lo- washer and dryer. Yeah, but you'd probably have somebody do it for you. No. I, I mean, you say that, but like, this is the thing. Nobody. If th- I had the luxury of having a washer and dryer, oh, oh. You better believe I would wash one shirt at a time because I don't give a fuck. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, man, that might be that might be kind of true for a while or something. But when you realized you didn't have to and you could spend your time doing other things and that having someone on your house staff would only, you know, basically just an all purpose person like Ulrika's job where they do that type of stuff for you and mostly watch the house. That would work, especially if you were traveling a lot and stuff, you'd need that. So hmm. you would pay that salary and you would stop doing it yourself. Like this is why people, this is what I'm saying. This is why lottery winners often run out of money Yeah, is they don't understand that all those things cost money over time and are not just one time purchases. So you get a lot of things that at first you're like, Oh, I blew half my money, but it's no big deal. Well, I would, no, no, no. But you always like, before you start spending, you give it to, you know, a money manager person to get some stonks and then, uh, make sure, make that money work for you. Yes, hopefully hopefully you do that. But but I am just saying that when you get accustomed to a certain lifestyle, I don't think a lot of people think it really think it through really hard like having a lot of money is a skill. Yeah. Having a lot of money and not losing it. I'm not saying this will happen to you. I'm trying to get it to a broader conversation. You're really shitting on my fantasy time of trying to <laughs> Yeah, but uh, you know, do you take that point at all that like having a lot of money and managing it basically becomes your job yeah rather than having a job at all you're watching where all your money's going because also the more and more people are involved with 
your life and whether it's spending money on them or having them manage your money, the more likely it is they're going to take a little off the top in every yeah, direction. Well, yeah. And if you're not looking at your own statements because now you've hired an accountant, like people lose, get See, fleeced. but I've been like too poor for too long that I'm like, no, 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 no. Like check the check the balances every day. I guess so, but again, I I don't know how long that would last. Like, I, I'm genuinely curious about that because I feel the same way about myself. I'd be like, oh, I don't want to ever go broke again. Yeah. So I'd be really diligent about it. But like, suddenly, when you you know when it's going fine for a year, you're like, ah, it's gonna be fine. Mm. And maybe not. I mean, like any when you see like toothless yokels get like sixty million dollars or whatever, you're just like, oh, that's gonna buy a really terrible boat. Or math, I don't know, or both. Um, well, no, I just, I just think it's that people are not prepared for having money and don't know how to have it. And I'm not yeah. saying that I know better than anybody else. I, I just think that it, it could very easily happen to you because, again, like things like all of a sudden, so you pay off all your friend's student loan debt, right? And they're all really grateful. Yeah. And then one of them falls on hard times, and they're like, "Hey, I need ten grand." And you're like, "Oh, okay, that's fine, no big deal." But then you get a lot of people asking for ten grand. No. You know, I, I it would be very difficult, I think, for me personally to decline everybody, but that's what you have to start out doing. That's the mistake that people make, is I think, is opening the door to a certain generous spirit, and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden you have second cousins that you never met with your same last name knocking on your door. I wouldn't know those people. And, and it's okay if you don't give them the money, but then that just becomes a facet of your life. And maybe you even have to spend more money getting rid of those people. You know what I mean? There's a, there's a lot to it. You talking about often people? Gotta... I mean, you know, that's one way. The dark web's always there. Oh, wow. You can okay. get a lot of Bitcoin with $10 million. Okie dokie. <laughs> um, no, I would just buy all the Disney stonks away from you and just be like, haha, there's no more left. I have them all. Yes, buy all like 13 billion Disney stocks or however many there are. Yeah, it wouldn't go that far. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't go that far. I don't know. That's the thing. Then you got to watch your own investments and know what they're, you know, know what they're doing. Yeah. Whether your uh, money manager is investing the stuff well, you never know. Whether they're taking a higher percentage than somebody else you could be working with, you know, you don't know. It would be difficult. It, it, I always think about it because my uh, my uncle, my Republican uncle that I love to hypothetically argue with in my mind and then argue with once a year at Christmas. He's a uh, contract lawyer. Oh. And I think that would be very helpful because ultimately I would go to him. I would probably, if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would actually probably call my Uncle Joe before I would even tell you. He and would if also that's tell not you, the way you're thinking about it, you're going to get fucked. Oh, no. He would also probably like tell you, like, get on a plane, just go somewhere, and then don't tell anyone for like a month. Oh, for sure. I think the biggest mistake that a lot of lottery winners make is doing the thing where you show up in public and sign the check or whatever. Oh, stupid. And in fact, some states make you do that. Oh. You're not allowed to collect the prize unless, you know, in that contract is like a public presentation of your win because it looks good for them. And I believe... Don't quote me on this, but I think New York is one of those states oh. where you have to be public. You might not have to do a TV show or whatever, but it is a matter of public record. You are not allowed to oh. stay anonymous as a winner. Interesting. You know, there's some states where you can and some states where you can't. Hmm. They bury that shit so deep on any website. It's very I tricky. Mean, no way, dude. Not. No. What are you talking really? about? No, it is not. Hmm. You also have to imagine that if it's a matter of public record, the first thing that's going to happen when anybody Googles your name is oh, that, yes, that for the rest of your life. No, but when you Google my name, like, 
an ultra runner comes up and one of the people who is on uh that show like little rascals show oh well you're lucky because your name is pretty generic but uh-huh. your name would shoot to the top of that list at least temporarily mm-hmm. and i can guarantee you there's an entire industry of uh snake oil peddlers and grifters that come out of the waterworks every time oh, somebody sure. wins the lottery you know yeah. imagine how imagine how easy it would be to a financially illiterate person or legally illiterate person to misrepresent yourself as a lawyer or something oh yeah you know it it, it would be very easy to do that i wouldn't know what to ask a lawyer necessarily to have them prove their identity uh mm. you know what i mean I'm sure there's a mechanism for that, but I don't know what it is off the top of my head. I mean, that's a bad sign. The main one would be okay. Yeah, you can contact my lawyer. You, uh, you won't. You'll speak sure. to my representation. You, not me do directly. you have a lawyer right now? No, of course not. So you what do you? Lie, so what are you duh. talking about? You'd have to go get one. Yeah, you lot. I know people with lawyers. Sure. Okay. Everyone knows people with lawyers. Yeah. You don't know people with lawyers? No, of course. Uh, like you said, everyone knows people with lawyers. But I'm just saying you don't have one. So yes, you could do that to the grifter. Yeah. But what number are you going to give them? Do you know it right now? Uh, 100-888-8888. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Salino and Barnes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really funny, actually. That's how you could out people. Give them that number, and if they didn't recognize it immediately as the, the billboard memes... Then fuck them. They don't know. know they're yeah. not worth it. They don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean... Or like 1-877-CARS-FOR-KIDS. Be like, that's those are my lawyers. <laughs> Which, they're apparently sketchy. Uh, yes. Uh, d- did I ever show you five-ish... Yes. Um, five-ish. Ooh. Five-ish could be considered by some to be anti-Semitic, except here's the thing. Five-ish is an uh, anthropomorphic $5 bill mascot yeah. for a conservative Jewish organization. No, I am not making that up. No, it is not a bit. Feel free to look this up yourself. <sighs> I believe the organization's name is U-R-A-H. That's a terrible name. But anyway, they're the people behind Cars for Kids, just so you know. They are? Yeah, the five-ish people are the Cars for Kids people. I thought it was like a uh, Christian organization. Uh, maybe I'm mixed up, but I but I remember when I was really into five-ish, like looking up all the connections of all these various shell companies, and they were all connected to the same place. And I, I want to oh. say Cars for Kids is like a conservative Jewish organization. And they, the scam is they basically take a lot of those donations and give them to Israel. They don't go to the kids? They Some of them go to the kids, but a lot of it goes to the organization also like what are you doing giving giving the cars to kids to like go kart in like what I, I never understood like no 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 cars cars for kids was that if you have a junk used car that has really no resale value they'll basically pay you the scrap value or or you give it to them rather than scrapping the car oh. so a piece of junk car that's sitting in your yard let's say that's worth 800 bucks mm-hmm. cars for kids will just come and pick it up rather than you having to pay to, to dispose of it and oh. then they get the value of the scrap or the parts. But why wouldn't you just? You take could also probably do that with a newer used car, but I don't. I don't imagine anybody really does that. Yeah, wouldn't you just take it to a junkyard and be like, have it for parts? Well, but you know, then you're gonna pay for towing to get it there, and they might buy it off you. But you know, by the time you pay for towing a junk car, the scrap value, like you're you're maybe breaking even. You're probably losing money. A tow's only a hundred bucks. Yeah, but sometimes there's shells of cars that are rusted out that are not worth that much. There's platinum in the converter. Yeah, but sometimes sometimes cars in people's yards don't even have a converter in them. Oh, that's true. How much time have you spent in Parma? There are yards Four hours. full of these type of things. But I'm yeah. just, you know, this is just a for example. I'm sure you're right that at some point it's worth it. But I don't know, man. This goes back to the lottery thing of 
you think you know better than everyone and you have all these complicated schemes of like what you would do if you were in particular situations except that you wouldn't do that and i know that and i don't understand why you pretend like you would i mean if you had a junk let's say hypothetically you had a house right yeah and you had a junk car in your lawn for some reason because why you, would i ever? you were you ballooned up and you couldn't move anymore and Corolla okay. rotted away in the front yard, right? She's already halfway there. Yeah, so exactly. So let's say, yeah, actually, we can use our place right now. We're in the apartment right now, and for some reason, Corolla breaks down. The bottom just corrodes out, and it's stuck in that parking place, right? And the city comes, and they're like, listen, you need to get this car the fuck out of here, or we're going to fine you $2,000 because it's been sitting here for two weeks mm. or whatever, right? Now, you act like you'd be like, yeah, I'll pay for a tow truck and take it to the scrapyard, and maybe you would do these things. But... If it didn't have a lot of resale value and Cars for Kids was like, hey, we'll come pick it up for free. Oh, I'd probably be like, sick. Duh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I probably would. Yeah, of course you would. I know. There's no reason There's no reason to pretend like you wouldn't. I think Corolla would have to be... Wor- I guarantee you right now Corolla's like value is lower than it would be worth to you. And I mean you personally, not one. To take any action over it. She just got several, several pretty pennies in the span of like three months. So she's so, fine. Now. Well, at this point, you have some sunk costs. So now you're prepared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm prepared to take but a, let's little, say it a was, little bit more care of her. It was four months ago and she was making a lot of funny sounds. And then finally she breaks down. And they're like, yeah, your car is totaled. We can tow it to the shop. I'll give you 400 bucks for it. Yeah, I would take that. But you got to pay for the tow, and it's two fifty. Fine. Okay. Yeah, it's better than nothing. You're ending up up. Yeah, that's true. In that case, you're ending up up. That was a stupid example. That's that's the purely cheap genetics in me that would be like, well, I get a little bit of money, so I'm like, well, it's fine. I end up with a hundred and fifty bucks. Oh, I mean, yeah. On on something so old like that, it's kind of amazing because even two hundred fifty bucks, like you're sad for the loss of your big dumb car or whatever, but. After 10 years or whatever, $250 feels like a profit. You're like, oh, free yeah, money. Why not? Yeah, it's free money. Yeah, why not? You're giving me something to get rid of this? Yeah. Great. Thank you. I'll use this for something. Uh, I finally got to use the lighters. Yeah. That was that was surprising. Keep in mind that I don't think you've ever even mentioned those on here before. I didn't? So you should explain what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, the zip. Okay, so I ordered two Zippo lighters. In order to update Perfect Lovers, the Felix Gonzalez Torres double clocks that fall out of sync over, you know, batteries and a slippage of the second hand and all that kind of stuff. Because contemporarily. No well, this ha- is the this is the part where it stops making sense. So I'm going to interrupt you and ask you, why, why are lighters in your mind more contemporary or a better representation of the Perfect Lovers concept today? Because... The brass Zippo is like the, it's the Mad Men icon of like truly brassy masculinity. Like it's kind of status, but also like got that war, like tinge of war history, but also like they're very masculine objects, right? Well, that makes sense. But why today? Why is that better for today? That sounds nostalgic. That doesn't sound like an update. Well, it's a twofer because if you have perfect lovers that this is a slow burn, the two manly lighters is a little bit more like a grinder hookup burns out hard and fast Uh flick those fuckers and then they run out of fluid yeah how long does it take for them to run out of fluid i don't know it got too hot Uh oh 
So maybe it doesn't really work. It it does work because, <laughs> granted, I realized when I filled them, wow, I should really be measuring how much liquid I'm putting in these so they're kind of similar. Yeah, but I just kind of eyeballed it. That seems so. very important. You should probably measure it exactly for it to make conceptual sense. You would think, but also like the way that the like because it's a commercial object, the way that the cotton is packed. Which sure, is the wick lengths and stuff are probably slightly different or whatever. The, no, it's not the wick. It's the it's the packing material. Okay. So when you un when you take oh. apart a Zippo, yeah. there's a felt pad, like a dense felt pad, and then like this piece of cotton that you saturate, right. which you have to do just by sight. Like y- there's no way to like measure because it's like, well, did it work? They just tell you fill it until it changes color, and I'm like, the fuck. Oh, I see. Okay. And then one of them, like... What's to stop you from measuring the fluid in two separate vessels, just so you know you have the same amount of fluid that fits in the lighter? Oh, yeah, like doing shot glasses at a time or something. And then putting it in there, yeah. I didn't think of it at the time. I just wanted to see them both lit. Sure. Because I'm... Yeah, well, it really only exists in photographic form for now anyway. I was going to do a video, but then, like, even having them open for, like... 30 seconds those fuckers got so goddamn hot i was like (gasps) yeah yeah they're not they're meant to light a cigarette they're not meant to be open flames open for a while yeah um but let's let's return to the point because i'm curious about i i I guess i understand the analogy to a grinder hookup or whatever but what is your read on the felix gonzalez torres play uh piece in the first place because i'm not 100 percent sure i understand what perfect lovers is about like i appreciate it I appreciate it aesthetically as like sub- it's supposed to be a couple, I guess, but I don't understand why he chose a clock necessarily. Like, it, it seems very general and not very specific, whereas your take on it seems very specific. No, they're identical objects. Sure. They do the same thing. Yeah. They're truly like homo objects if you think about same right? as the prefix. Interesting. Okay. But they fall out of time. Yeah. Just based on the fact that there are gears, the battery only works for so long, the slippage of all those, the second and the hour and the minute hands, like the abrasion can kind of throw them off of being in perfect time with each other. Sure. Much much like the lighters, they're simply a commercial object with degradation or just any material thing degrades. But it takes so much longer for them to fall out of, essentially to fall out of love. Right. Okay. Right, like that's the. I, I, it's occurring to me now that I guess I've I've only seen that piece in person once or twice. I I don't think I've seen it on display very many times, and I've only ever seen it out of sync. I've never seen it, yeah, in its ideal state. Like a lot, like the Jeff Koons basketballs or whatever. You they're always fucked you up, never yeah. see them as they're represented in concept or in photographs. They're always like out of sync. I feel like I've never seen them. The perfect lovers, yeah, yeah, or maybe like not. maybe they're in like a thing, and it's like I don't know. I have a very vague memory of having seen them, maybe in a museum in Chicago or something. I feel it was like very like out of, uh, out of the norm. That tracks. I think they had. I don't know, um, but I don't know. But yeah, so you were trying to update this piece, and you feel like there's something spicy about the flame and the duration. Ish, yeah, but I but don't it know. seems like you're attracted to the aesthetic nostalgia of the. Well, I mean, lighter. is it not like a masculine, like a purely masculine object? Because that's like it's designed for camping, given issued to soldiers at war. Yeah, I would say it's it's was mostly a military issue thing. Zippos. Yeah, they were. I think that's what they were made for. 
Maybe. I don't know. Because they don't really go out in the wind, and yeah. they're fairly durable and like semi-waterproof. I'm pretty sure they were a military innovation in the first place. Huh. Yeah. Well, that makes it a little... That adds a layer I didn't know. Yeah, but, but, it, but it reinforces your point that they're pretty quintessentially masculine. What's interesting is that they're not ubiquitous. They are, they're anachronisms. They're really not a thing that people really use anymore. However... They are a thing. They are a thing for a certain kind of culture. Like they, uh, they have a billion like Harley Davidson branded ones. Yeah, for sure. Like, and it has a very weird slice of Americana for like get your contemporary Zippo. It has Sons of Anarchy laser etched on the side, and I'm like, hey. I feel like Zippos have. It's interesting to use them as a work of ready-made art because Zippos have basically just become um, display items. I think. I mean, I don't doubt that there's bikers and, like, hipsters out there that do use them to light their cigarettes. In fact, I know that's true. But really what they are for is getting custom engraved or getting the logo of something that you like or whatever. And you'd get one as a gift from someone that knows very little about you, except on the shallowest level. And they're like, oh, he likes Sons of Anarchy. I'll get him the Sons of Anarchy Zippo. He'll think that's fun. And then you get it and put it in a drawer. Yeah. I think that's mostly what happens to Zippos now is they're sort of, like, kitschy display items at best basically forgettable gifts keepsakes yeah the first one i ever bought was for one of my like first bosses uh because he like this is again teenage retail child worked at american eagle so i I, like as the like group gift i was like why don't we get him a lighter because he was a secret smoker sure so we got him a lighter engraved with an eagle on it and the store number he was like, this is great, and then just threw it in his bag. I was like, I know you're never going to use it. Yeah, yeah, it's never going to go anywhere. But it's also like for those military dudes, I know like uh, my grandfather had one, and then I w- would associate that flick with the next scent of tobacco pipe. Sure, yeah, yeah. Smell. So it's like when I hear- heard the flick, I was like, I was like, I'm missing the second part. What do you mean? Yeah, yeah. And I, my I, brain did a thing, and I went, huh? No, I think like World War II, like Greatest Generation, um, if you were, yeah, you were issued a lighter as a soldier like that. You may still be issued one. I'm sure they take a different form now. But, um, yeah, those would those would be sort of heirloom quality. Yeah. If you got your grandpa Zippo and he was a vet or whatever, yeah, sure. Yeah, because, well, at the base level, they're like, it can light a campfire. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm sure they still provide lighters to soldiers. Yeah. But, but in World War II, I feel like it was even less about having a flame for anything but cigarettes oh no it's 100 p like well you got to be sane yeah there you it, go. it was when they issued people cigarettes oh yeah. as rations yeah yeah but yeah it's interesting so it's that it's a weird confluence between on one level being like a sort of flippant grinder era joke and on the other level having like a deep-rooted sort of i don't know forgotten history yeah i'm like is it too on the nose but is it also kind of like like i i, I worry i'm like it's Mm. is it too dumb well i don't know that's what that's why i was asking you these questions because it seems to have two different things going on so it's maybe not that it's dumb but how do you understand the confluence of those two things yeah it actually seems like now that i think of it like a a closeted gay vet from world war ii would maybe understand the piece better than somebody today would understand it maybe because everybody understands that it's a perfect lover's reference and everyone knows that you're gay so it's just sort of yeah you just sort of connect it to that prior thing and it's just sort of a riff on that but you don't have the the greater cult like the more historical cultural signifier doesn't like ring Uh, no it does but it doesn't 
doesn't match the other joke. Mm. So you have the joke on one level, which is that it burns out hot and fast, which makes a lot of sense. But the aestheticization of choosing a Zippo rather than a particular lighter that would be common in a club. Because if you're, you know, I'm not saying yeah. that you should do this. You obviously chose to do the one thing and it works pretty well as an image, but understanding the meaning of it is separate from any matter of judgment. Hmm. It's just that if it was only a joke, a trendier, like maybe Zoomer gay artist would pick some, one of those like butane, butane lighters from a bodega that people use to smoke meth with. Because oh, then all of a yeah. sudden you have a connection between like the type of drug that might be used by gay men in a club and a grinder yeah. thing, and it would make a lot more sense to a lot more people. But you have this nostalgic anachronism attached to it that is interesting, but I'm not sure like where that's coming from. But also, like I don't know, I I don't think of like, for lack of a better word, like crack lighters as icons in any like specific way. Well, you're not a part of that community. That's why you don't think of it that way but they definitely exist that way but there's but because they come in so many colors like what's the color like the idea of a brass zippo is like it's the only thing well interesting interestingly i don't uh, like i feel like the orange one hang on hang on there's two things you have you have the problem of like jasper johns and the flashlight where when you think of an object in your mind you do have an ideal version of it you could think of anything yeah and it's actually really hard to find the quintessential version of any object so in john's case it was hard to find the flashlight you could say the same thing of a butane lighter like yes they come in a lot of different styles and colors but i guarantee you if you were well attuned to using them and were part of a community of people where they had a lot of meaning you could eventually find through hard work and research a quintessential one that would strike the right chord. Now, that part two is that you say brass Zippo is the only thing, but I actually don't think that's true. I think silver Zippo. Silver really? unadorned Zippo, because that, those were the military issue ones that I was referring to, and those were the ones that I most commonly see. I don't see brass ones. I see silver ones. Really? Yeah, for sure. The silver has the military reference. The brass has the, like, white collar I don't know, maybe. I mean, but There's again, but that's of... just not a that's not a thing that anybody anymore has any access to. Yeah. There may have been a time from the 50s to the 80s where like businessmen that were cigar smoking or cigarette smoking in the office where a brass zippo would have been the sign of a certain uh, affluence. It would it, well it was also a sign that you didn't serve because you right. wouldn't you you would use your issued one. Maybe maybe not. I don't know. Well, or... But again, it's just it's a very particular choice. Yeah, because to me also brass just reads as gold, especially in photographs. It yeah. act, it seems deliberately gaudy. Mm. Brass does other things too. Like it's on every like doorknob because it's you know we're allegedly in our germaphobic times. Like, well, it's antimicrobial. I'm like, I don't know if I believe that. But like brass is like old world like polish yeah sure sure but especially when you're seeing something on a pedestal as an artwork and especially in a photograph unless you read a materials list or whatever you're seeing a color not a material yeah granted like the perfect thing would be the 24 karat one so if anyone wants to uh donate twenty two thousand dollars for two gold <laughs> Jesus zippers christ um <laughs> well and i'm not eleven thousand dollars like, i want to be clear that it's not about ch- it's not about changing what you made but it's about trying to under understand what it actually means yeah i mean part of me is like i don't know this is why i'm like bringing it up because i'm like i don't know if it because it was a long 
hard one road to get these little fuckers after like two months because the first set was scratched for some reason. Yeah. So now I'm like, huh. Same thing with the like the gnome after two months of waiting for a carved piece of plastic carved in scare quotes. I'm just like, huh. Huh. I don't know. Well, I think these ready-made things that you're making are not over are not over determined and that's part of their charm. They yeah. are there are like kind of impulsive sort of gestural things. So I wouldn't worry about it too much, but I, but it, at the same time like the same goes for any artwork kind of. I think most artwork no matter how like conducive to labor it is is pretty intuitive at first and then the responsibility of being an artist is being able to talk about it meaningfully later because you have to spend some time viewing it and being with it to understand it yeah i think only really bad didactic art is explainable before it's made yeah so i wouldn't worry about it but in terms of your lighters i do think it's interesting because i i it's just it's a cross it's two it's two things it's not one thing yeah, and it well, it was like surprising just to see them take like as objects together, which is like that's always a fun, happy little moment when you're like, ooh, yeah. But like, I don't know, like I don't know, I have a hard time. Like, my brain is having some hard times thinking about like what's the thing that makes me go ooh, like because then it that starts the like snake eating its tail process. Yeah, and when I you know. I don't know. Like when I get the ooh, when I get the ooh, I'm like, oh, now I got to sit with it. Oh, shit. When you finish an artwork, that's the second ooh that you get. Because the first ooh that you get is the idea. And in in terms of these ready-mades, it's really clearly illustrated because you get the ooh of like, oh, that's like a clever, perfect lover's reference. This is exactly the two things I want it to look like. I just need to order them. Then you wait, you get them, you put them down, you light them, and you go, ooh, work over, right? It's the same thing with finishing a painting. You have the initial spark, and you might have a vague image in your head, or you might do a Photoshop mock-up, but when you actually make the thing, does it make you go, ooh, or not? If it does, it's good. That doesn't mean you clearly understand it yet. And also, like, I think you have to be comfortable with the idea that with ready-mades especially, because they don't really require anything other than conceptualizing them, then they arrive, that you might have to do them more than once. Yeah. If it makes you uncomfortable that you have references you didn't know you had, or that someone has a different read on it than you intended, then you have to do it again. Yeah. And I wouldn't worry about it too much, whether it's money or your own thinking time, because think about how much time and money goes into a painting. So what? You scrap a ready-made, now you just have two brass zippos that you can use whenever you want. That's true. If you decide to scrap them, you know? Mm, or I take them somewhere them, and sell them yeah. or whatever. Or, or maybe they just sit around in the studio and you do it again some other way. Yeah. And I'm not saying any of those things have to happen. It's just that I wouldn't think... Uh, it's interesting to me that you seem to be implying that you feel pretty stuck with it when really it's not... You didn't make that much of an intervention. So what's the risk in setting it aside or changing it? No, no, no. It's not feeling stuck with it. Like, I don't... Uh, I don't necessarily feel that, but it's like, okay, what what does this cause then next in the thinking? And that's the part that, that I go, hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm bringing this up, because, like, or talking about it, because it's like, how do you, like, do a thing, make a thing, set a series of choices, and then go, huh, that didn't, that didn't quite, uh, that didn't quite, but it is doing the thing that I wanted, 
but it's not doing the thing that makes me excited. I mean, we should say really quick, it's always really difficult to talk about art on here because nobody's going to know what the fuck we're talking about, yeah. no matter how hard we try to explain. But Will posted this on Instagram, so you should go look at it so you know what is going on. But I think the biggest problem, in my opinion, after this conversation with what you made there, is the title. I think you should detach it from Perfect Lovers and trust your audience to get that reference. And that should not be a part of the work officially. That should mm. just be a reference that's implied and people that get it, get it. And yeah, forget the people like... that don't and come up with your own title for it because largely that's what sells the ready-mades anyway. Like the ones with text kind of have an embedded title yeah. that makes them work and that mm. is the whole joke. And I think this is the first textless one that you've done, right? Yes. So like the title rather than being a reference to perfect lovers what you do is you make the you make that artwork uncomplicated because everybody gets the perfect lovers reference already hmm. they read your title and they go oh it's a perfect lovers reference moving on yeah and nobody ever has to think about it any further but if you do think about it further you get to all these other levels of like world war ii or businessman culture or whatever and if you think if the issue now is that you're thinking about it, and it does and you like what it's doing, but you're not sure what it's doing, think about it harder and make a better title. And then you can point people in that direction. Hmm. Where's the title that conveys the anachronistic part of the piece and the contemporary part of the piece? Because basically like, he, okay, here's the narrative that I'm spinning in my mind. If we're talking about a brass lighter in the 21st century, 20th century rather, and gay culture, right? Mm -hmm. Those people would have been closeted, but the grinder reference implies that they're not. Mm -hmm. And the grinder relationships are hot and fast and disposable. Whereas Perfect Lovers was much more about m relationships being precious. Mm. Um, because they were not only frowned upon, but largely secret, or AIDS was killing people, so they were truly limited mortal. time. Yeah. And now it's like you dispose of people because you have unlimited choice, not because you have restriction of choice. So if we're talking the semiotics of this piece, it's sort of that's maybe the contradiction that's hard to describe is that you're referencing a period of time when two men with the same lighter like that may have connected. But it would have been like Saul and that guy in the hotel bar where you subtly hold hands across the table until somebody sees you. Mm. You know, I'm thinking more along those lines on one aesthetic level, but then you're making a joke on another level. And what's the connection between the two things? But, uh... And I think the connection is disposability, but one is uh, a really serious kind of disposability having to do with cultural ignorance and mortality. And this kind of disposability, the new one, having to do with, um, well, cultural narcissism. But also, like, Zippos are strange objects because it's just the shell, right? Like, it's not actually, like, the, the thing itself is a like ugly object like the thing that does all of the work the actual lighter is this like tin thing inside a, a like a put on basically uh i don't know if i agree with that i don't think that's true i mean i think i think zippo lighters are inherently beautiful and they're well constructed yeah but like what i'm saying is like the aesthetic thing on the outside the brass part that's yeah. just a case sure like, the thing itself is just pure design. Well, a lighter is just an automatic match. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what your point is. Well, the point is, like, that tin object in the middle, like, you can put whatever coating on the outside, but it's still just this, like, mechanism. 
in its interior. The guts of it. Okay. You can dress up the outside any any way you want. So, like, even that idea of, like, a classical ma- masculine object is, like, just a put-on. I don't know. I think that's reaching. Because, really? Because, yeah, because you're just talking about a coating on metal. I mean, you could say that about anything made of metal. That's no, not, no, no, no. That's I'm not specific to Zippos. No, no, no. I'm talking about, like, the, the, you know, the outer case, the brass part. You lift out the entire thing. Yeah, you're talking about, like, when you fill it with fluid, right? Yeah. It's yeah, just but... this other thing. No, it's not. I mean, it's an essential component of the lighter because without that shell, there's no way for the lighter to work or put it back in there. Mm, could. No, it's you, like it's like saying that the plastic part of a bic is just a shell and not part of the bic. That's oh, not I guess, true. Yeah, I guess the it doesn't work without that part. So, well, it would just leak everywhere. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, it it okay. doesn't really make any sense. Like, yeah. like it's a pretty. It's a very reduced design object. That's why Zippos are pretty things, is that they are the simplest, most reductive, ideal version of something that could be more complicated. Yeah. And they're not. Yeah. And they do have an iconic status, you know, which I think is fading just because culture has changed. Mm. Because smoking culture is not around to the same degree. Hmm. And also, like, I don't know, I, wa- I worry if, like, anything that has any tinge of nostalgia is automatically, like, verboten now. No, I don't think so, but I think you have to be responsible for it. Yeah. I think the hard part about nostalgia in art is that most people use it unselfconsciously, and they do what I described earlier in terms of the title, where basically they make a painting that is just a reference with no outside content and no recombination of, like, different mimetic uh symbols like it's one thing to make sort of a pastiche i also think that's a lower form of art than like genuinely creating something like that's what i do but what most people do now is the nostalgia is unconstrained and unrefined they make a painting that is simply a bad version of a hilma off klimt or simply a bad version of a Milton Avery, or simply a bad version of a David Hockney. Like, 99% of people that I see making art on Instagram are just doing a degraded, lower-resolution version of something that's already happened. They're not commenting on it. It's just using... It's using someone else's vocabulary just now, Mm -hmm. which is like, well... Which I don't think is what you're doing, which is why I mentioned the title thing. Like, by pointing more directly to Felix Gonzalez Torres, you're lowering the resolution of something that's actually really complicated. Fair. You know? Yeah. And the, the conversation around nostalgia is always really difficult for me because I don't even think that's the right word. I think that nostalgia can be handled, like, responsibly or not. That's what I was just saying. Yeah. And I th- think it's okay to have n- nostalgic or that's why I always say anachronism rather than nostalgic mm. because it just means that it's in the wrong time. Yeah. Not that you have a particularly sentimental attachment to that time, you know? I think you're more accurate than me said. Like nostalgia, I'm just like, it's an out of time It's reference. an out of time reference. I think anachronism is always better. And I think anachronism is interesting, but then you have to kind of, in my opinion, uh, I think you have to kind of know your stuff about that time period and why it's interesting to connect it with something else and then be able to address the connection and describe that correlation. Mm. If not, then you just have a collage of one thing you cut out of a newspaper and one thing you cut out of a magazine and the newspaper is the New York times and the magazine is playboy. And it's like, well, 
who cares? That, that could have a connection, but did you think about it before you did it? And if the answer is no, then it's pretty hollow. Yeah. Uh, but if the answer is yes, and you think about it, and you can say, well, you know, this particular issue of the New York Times from 1971 was published on the same day as this centerfold that I took from Playboy, and it's meaningful because this. Uh -huh. Then you have something. And that relates to now because. Yeah. You know, you you sort of have to go through all of those stages of, I guess I would just describe it as research, but I really think that's like filling out a piece of conceptual art is like yeah. knowing about it. Yeah. And I and I think I think when you do those exercises, even if it's just mental after the fact, after you've made something, it lends a lot of valence to the artwork because like ultimately that's what people end up picking up on. Mm. They don't see one image and see another image and go, oh, it's a picture of Thomas Jefferson and a picture of a supernova. That's yeah. cool. It's there's something that's happening in the interplay between the two things that they can't quite pick out either. But the mm. better you can articulate it to yourself, the better you're likely to make the work. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's mainly like my I don't know. Painting's so much fucking easier. Well, it is and it isn't because painting painting has a sort of luscious, haptic, tactile quality that can excuse a lot of laziness and error. Oh, that yeah. that a ready-made doesn't have. Ready-mades are cool and distant, and they leave you with nothing but the concept and the image. So if you're not in pretty tough control of the concept and the image, you don't have much of a thing in the end. Whereas but, with a painting, just yeah. the fact, that just the lusciousness of a brushstroke, whether it's mislaid or not, can almost be enough to forgive um, lapses in rigor. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I like the idea of like a soft ready-made, not like a, not like talking about a pillow or something, but like something that isn't as cold. Like I, like I don't think that like my brain works in that cold way of like, well, it is what it is. Like, obviously it's just done. Like there's like a, like a kind of warm object, even if it's like a sterile thing, like even like any kind of humor makes it a softer thing yeah i think i think maybe the complication with the brass lighters is that they're sort of a serious one and that all yeah. the rest of them have just been jokes yeah and any time humor operates the same way in in like performative space that uh brushwork does in a painting where it can actually just cover up thorough thought through its vitality or like mm -hmm. lusciousness, you know. Yeah. There's just if it makes you laugh, then who cares why it's funny? Uh, you don't well, really want. Th th think about that in terms of a stand-up comedian or whatever. Like you actually don't really want to know too much about what the magician is doing, or it loses a little bit of its charm. And I think you could yeah. say that with paintings too. But oh, in yeah. ready-made, you in a ready-made, you have no cover. There is no illusion. Yeah. Or there's very very little. the The only layer of that is recontextualization. So if you're going to try to do that in yeah. a serious way, it's tough. Yeah. Yeah, a serious way that's not... And maybe starting with Perfect Lovers is a pretty high bar because yeah, that's yeah, one of the yeah. better ready-mades of all time. I mean... With a lot of gravity to it, which is rare. Because yeah. you think about Duchamp, it's really mostly about humor with maybe the exception of a Tantane. I don't. I can't think of any of those ready-mades that aren't, like, giggly. They mostly are. Um, bottle... But Felix... Bottle, bottle rack? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I'm sure it was some early 20th century inside joke in some way. That's Because yeah. that's almost what all of his stuff was. I just don't know a lot about the bottle rack in, in specific. No. 
But like Felix Gonzalez Torres was, yeah, that was actually, it's interesting to consider that that was probably his primary innovation was g- lending um, gravitas to ready-mades. Yeah. I don't think there was much of that because even even pop artists that were riffing on ready-mades as images or as, you know, soft sculpture, yeah. whatever, like it was pretty humorous. I mean, Keenholds maybe had some gravitas, but he also had this sort of dark humor, well, it ha- uh, well, grotesquerie. That, it also has the like hollywood of it all yeah sure you know like the noir like idea of california in the 60s and the 70s like it's just it is a time it it's more photographic in what it does as sculpture sure yeah well and it's inflected by like um pop culture but also the manson murders which became pop pop cultural thing in and of itself yeah sure but yeah i think felix gonzalez torres was the first time that just everyday or maybe not the first time, but the most prominent time, yeah. where every everyday objects palpably gained significance through the thin veil of putting them in a gallery, and like to have emotional. Charge I think Gober of was on kind. the same track too, but they're on they're of the same generation. But Gobers are hewn things. Yes, right. That's a that's it's a big difference. Not none of those are because even like the receipts are not receipts. I mean, he did some certain ready mades, like the bag of donuts. Originally, was just a bag, a bag of donuts. Of donuts. Mm. Yeah. And they gesture towards the same thing. Yeah. I think that I think that Gober was maybe a lot more repressed. I think his need to like make something rather than just present something. You know, think about the dollhouses that he made in his early work. It was all mm-hmm. this like f- fascination and obsession with craft. Yeah, and it was uh, maybe not repression, but sublimation of some other kind of desire into work. Um, well, I think of the door jam. Yeah. You know the door jam piece? Yeah. Like to actually like rip out something and represent. But then that is the last time that it's done. Sure. First like first and only. Yeah. Um but a lot of his work requires alteration of the space and stuff, you know. Yeah. I think he was just very obviously uncomfortable with the idea of only thinking and not doing. Busy yeah. hands, you know. I'm I'm straining I'm straining for the metaphor, but I really do feel like there's something about being obsessed with working on something that takes your mind off something else, and I think that like his sort of Midwestern presentation, like that just makes a lot of intuitive sense to me that it's about avoidance through making. Oh, it's the best part of making stuff. There you go. That you don't have to think about things. Right. But I think Felix Gonzalez Torres, on the other hand, was confident enough to not need to belabor anything. Well, the thinking was the labor. Whatever you want to say, but it's just it's just more about there was there was no need to hide behind anything. He was a confident artist. Yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't say Gober wasn't or isn't. No, no, but the content of his work is different. Yeah. I'm not talking about the artist's persona or their their thinking around themselves. It's just it's, it's what it means to a viewer. I mean, speaking of confident people, you see the size of the loan that Jeff Koons got? From what? the he got a PPP loan, <laughs> two Jesus two, two million dollars. Wow. Uh, what's his face? Who's that California guy? Paul McCarthy. Yeah. Also two million dollars. I am not in favor of this. I, I just have to say either. I didn't know that this happened, but um, no millionaire artists shouldn't be getting loans from the government for any reason. There's enough grants Absolutely that they not. soak up 
from everybody else all the time anyway uh-huh. that if they can't make ends meet for six months, fuck them. Well, for Jeff Koons, it was like, well, I can't pay 52 people to make my things then if I don't have money. And it's like, you already have been paid for things. Millions of dollars worth of well, things yeah, that are yeah. still being worked on, bro. It's not a point even worth making anymore. But he's like, I can't have my giant house in Pennsylvania and a nice apartment in New York and a third place somewhere else and a place in Hong Kong and raise all seven of my basically Mormon children. Yeah, I mean, eh, you can't like... I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, Jeff Koons is just a business. It doesn't It doesn't surprise me that this happened. It's just, it's, it's pretty... It's pretty shitty that Jeff... Coons got two million dollars and we got twelve hundred bucks. Yeah. Yeah, fuck you. And how much of that actually went to anyone? I don't know. I'm In sure, I'm payroll, sure some like, of it did, but it's just like it's not necessary. You sell works for ten times that amount of money all the time. What do you mean you don't have two million dollars to like pay your staff with? You do have it. You have it. You're just not willing to lose it. Well, when there's free money, we talked about this about winning lottery. Well, or trading in a car. Well, I'm making two hundred fifty yeah, yeah, bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I might as well get my two hundred fifty bucks. No, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, why not? But I mean, GoGo got some, Pace got some. No, I'm sure they all did. It's just I don't even like hearing about it. I know. I despise I despise the art world so much. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe we can finish on this because I had an interesting conversation the other night, and I would like to try and talk about it with you. Because I'm not sure. I, 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 think I, I think I told you early in the quarantine that I was trying to write something. I think you were seeing me reading the art and theory for a while, and I was like taking notes and really trying hard to flesh out an idea. Yeah, and I was like, what are you doing to that doorstop? Um, <laughs> speaking How of... How do you pick that? It opens? <laughs> no. What are you talking about? Um, well, so I was really involved in like revisiting Greenberg. I don't even really remember how it started. I was just having ideas. And I reread Avant-Garde and Kitsch, uh-huh. especially, um, and a couple other of his things, and watched all these lectures with him. And like, I always really liked Greenberg because he seemed like the last time that there was any like really serious analysis connected to art. And you could you could you can say what you want about the conclusions that he drew, but he was really trying hard to understand what art was fundamentally, and not on a higher layer of the stack. He wasn't interested in art from the angle of identity or from the angle of only economy or, you know, he was not superficial about it. He saw a universality in art and he was trying to describe what that was. Hmm. So long story short, I was trying to connect my absolute like disconnection from what passes as art now, meaning mostly the blue chip and mid-tier stuff, like what you see presented as art in art forum. What is the difference between that and what I recognize as art, which is more earnest? When was the last time you picked up an art form, though? I don't even know what's in it. I, but you can guess what's in it, right? You know that mm. it's still full of all the same ads and all the same artists. It has been for 20 years. It hasn't changed. I don't know. That I can guarantee you. Because I, you know, I, I see art forms from time to time when I was at work and stuff like it's not like I didn't see them. Oh, I haven't seen one in Ooh, boy. Yeah, it's it's all the same shit. You're seeing the same ads from the same New York galleries, and you're seeing the same two-year cycle of artist shows go by, right? So mm. what's the difference between that and actual art? Because obviously, as we all know, that stuff is just... Um, Poker chips. Yeah. It's passive wealth creation, and people pretend to take it seriously on a conceptual level... And it may have started out that way, but it doesn't hold that value anymore. No. A Richard Serra doesn't mean anything except its monetary value. 
It really does not. I mean, it's heavy too. Yeah. Okay, well, it, and it it's costs, got tonnage, and it costs money to move it, and you have to reinforce your floor, and like that's all anybody thinks yeah. about. You don't think about what he was trying to do with that. I stuff. mean, it's a it's still a nice roller coaster sometimes, but half the time they're not that good. Sometimes the ride is kind of bad. No, but my point was this: in rereading Avant Garde and Kitsch, what Greenberg lays out in that is the idea that Kitsch came along when industrial society came along, mm. when the bourgeois needed a way to disconnect itself from the rural folk. You know, you could think about the mid-19th century, say, starting with Impressionism, right? Hummels. Well, Hummels come along because now there's enough of a factory and manufacturing infrastructure to create a debased version of art for the masses so that the elites can have high art, which is where everything theoretical is taking place, and they get to feel good about themselves for financing innovation. And at the lower level... There's enough of a superstructure now that the rural folk get to have a mass art that they all get to share too, which by the way, they had before, but it was replaced rather than making quilts. Now you buy one. So they work in the factories and the factories produces their culture. Yeah. And you can see this reflected in society still today. Karen's get their gather. The live, laugh, love. Like all the jokes that you make on these commodities are the beginning of this, right? Yeah. Or the the ultimate of this. But so I was starting to think, like, what's going on in art now is that basically blue chip art, the bourgeois art, is actually just kitsch. It's a manufactured product made for the upper classes now rather than the lower classes to satisfy some itch that they lost over time. Because hmm. they stopped financing actually innovative art and started just using it as an asset. Yes. So whereas before you might be a patron of Jackson Pollock or Marcel Duchamp and keep them uh, solvent so that they could fuck around and play chess and maybe make a taunt on A, yeah. they got tired of doing that because the return wasn't good enough. Fair. So now yeah. you recycle the same artists over and over again, and you've ended up in an industry where, granted, the artists are still individuals. They're not industrial. But you just have a class of artisans now that you don't want to innovate. In fact, you require them to say the same. So what's the difference between blue chip art and kitsch in its original incarnation? Nothing really. I think you could sub the word in and just flip the economic dynamic. Mm -hmm. It's an imperfect analogy, but it's almost there. And then I think you could say the same thing for avant-garde and the other way around. That now the lower classes who don't have any money and don't have any patronage in certain pockets have started innovating again on their own. Mm Mm-hmm. And so the avant-garde is now taking place on the lower class level, and on the upper class level, it's kitsch. And so I just wanted to throw that out there because I was talking about this the other night. It hadn't, I hadn't thought about it in many weeks, but that was my basic conception of what the art landscape looks like now. Poor people have always been on that kind of avant-garde tip in the first place. What ends up happening, though, is that once you make a knowable product a brand like you know once you have a brand that higher echelon machine wants you to make things in line with the brand you then become a creative director of your own studio and not a painter or a sculptor or whatever like you you are not a thinker you're just like what's the suite of things that we're gonna 
going to send out this time. Well, that's why I think that substituting the word kitsch for blue chip art makes a lot of sense now. I wish the thing is, I wish I had a new term for it. Mm. But what you're describing is just the um, financialization of artisans. Yeah. So they don't turn into factories, but they do turn into, uh, yeah, uh, management consultants for themselves. Kind of, but like even still, you have someone like take for instance like a Mary Heilman, right? Where it's blue chip. She's going to crank out the same fucks that whatever she wants to do. Right. However hippy dippy as it was in like the beginning of like actually doing pictorial magic magicianship. Um, now it's just like, oh, it's a highway on some weird squares. But it's, it's but that's like buying the like Grove stand cheese versus like an heirloom cheddar from Provence that would be like Jeff Koons. Where it's a machine in term or Parmigiano Reggiano, right. like it has to be from one factory. It only comes from w- only one land, and nothing else gets the brand. Whereas Maria Hyman's like, I don't know, I just get some cows, and then it's really beautiful and wonky. But like, yeah, this is my thing, and I'm gonna sell it for a shitload of money. But well, I think it's less. Ab- I, I I get what you're saying, but I think the m- the more salient thing is that at a certain point, and I. Mary Heilman is a tough example to use because she's such a beloved artist, but honestly, like, she just started making posters of her own work. Yeah. And yes, they're still made of paint, and yes, they're still on canvas, but they are essentially just images of things that have already been made. She stopped thinking at a certain point and just started making that stuff again. So the difference between her and Jeff Koons is not really that big. He did just refine it into an actual industry, mm-hmm. whereas she remained an artisan, but she never innovated again. But After 1985 or so, Mary Heilman never did anything again. In the 90s. Sure. But what I'm saying, like, even that Grove Stand Yokel thing is a put-on. It can become a put-on if you do it for so long. Well, and I don't think that these artists can consciously separate the difference between, like, having fallen into this and being authentic. I don't think they see the difference. Yeah. Because the incentives are not aligned for them to see it, you know? like, um, It's like, here's a better example. Mary Hallman is Van Leeuwen, and then Jeff Koons is Haagen-Dazs. Well, the... the uh, Let's return to the point, because the point I'm trying to make is what difference does it make? They've just turned into mass-produced brands, and they are not artists. Artists would make different things over time because they would feel compelled to innovate within their own thinking. And what's demonstrated in both of those examples is that at a certain point, they hit a wall and stopped trying. Yeah. Because it was lucrative. But you retain your packaging. If you, if this this is yeah, my yeah, point, yeah. is that no, you're I, like, I'm going to sell myself as X, or I'm going to lean into being the machine. I don't I don't dispute that. Of course not. But the more interesting thing to me is what you were saying before, which is that uh you know, lower classes were always on the avant-garde tip. I don't think that's true. Huh. I think that's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, but like I don't I don't think that making quilts or doing like small-scale art for your community is avant-garde. That does not advance any theory of aesthetics. It doesn't take people's minds to a new place. That doesn't mean it's not beautiful. That doesn't mean it's not comforting. That doesn't mean it doesn't have value. But it is not avant-garde art. Um, How attached are you to the need to have anything resembling an avant-garde? Very attached. Because I think the, the, the major societal problem that we're facing in every discipline right now is stagnation and i think that's indisputable to anybody that's honest with themselves and if you think art is somehow exempt from that 
you're crazy. All you have to do is go scroll through your own Instagram and look at 90% of the people that make fake versions of other people's paintings to see yeah. that nobody's actually thinking about what they're doing. Or very few people are. And the few people that are have no resources to ga gather an audience by and large. Mm. Hmm. And I think that's a really tragic condition. I, what I was saying the other night was that m my overarching theory with this is that I think we're going to have a lot of Van Goghs from this era, meaning people that sold a little bit while they were alive but mm -hmm. remained mostly unknown and ignored and then are rediscovered within a few decades, maybe a few hundred years, and are considered aesthetically significant and like world-defining for the early 21st century. But it will not be Julie Moreto. It will not be Jacqueline Humphreys. It will not be people like that. See, I'm more of the... I lean in more that the... Uh you're going to have a lot more Marcus Dobbies than anything else. I'm not sure I know who that is. You know him? No. Eight, 80s. Picture it. Weird, like, it looks like uh, early MTV videos with, like... Oh, sure. I don't know this guy in particular, but there's a lot of art from the 80s like that. Yeah, sure. But it's, like, figurative, but it's, like, blank and, like... No, but my, uh, my, my accusation is more profound than that, that most of the art that right now is being traded as financial assets is Mark Kostabi. Mm. I think that's... Oh, you're not wrong. I think I mean, that's actually what you're going to discover is that things that are on people's... I don't even think they're on people's minds anymore. I think that coronavirus and like economic troubles have made it more obvious than ever that none of that shit is good or matters. Yeah. Um, but I think what you're going to find is, you know, obviously because those things have a lot of monetary value, they will be preserved. So they will still end up in museums and stuff. Mm. But to use an older example, I think they'll be treated a lot more like Bouguereau and the corbets that are hanging across the room will be people you've never heard of. Hmm. I can almost guarantee you that that's going to be true if there's any innovation happening at all in art. Because it's certainly not on the highest level and it's very rarely even on the middle, middle or low level that I can tell. Hmm. Think of the last time you saw a work of art that like kind of floored you, even by someone you like. Hmm. I can't do it. Floored is hard. I don't know. But I'm hopeful that the things that floor people do exist. It's just that their 500 followers on Instagram are the only people that know about it right now. Hmm. And I can and I can almost guarantee you that's true. I hope. Wow, that's a weird word to hear out of your mouth. Yeah, yeah. The H word. Well, you know, I, I've realized lately, I, I don't know what, what's been going on. I've actually just been doing a lot of thinking. I think it's because you've been at work and I can't like rush out into the room and just like spew my thoughts and then, you know. That's the one perk of throwing shoeboxes yeah, around all but day no, and I've been yelled at anymore. I've been <clears> doing <throat> a lot of thinking and actually it's been helpful that things are opening up a little bit where you're actually able to talk to other people, not over Zoom or like, you know, like yeah. in person. But I've realized about myself that I th I'm definitely uh, an optimist that masquerades as a pessimist. And it gets me into a lot of trouble in my life because people perceive me as a pessimist. But it's not true. And and I think that a, a, what I've also... It depends on the day. It does. But uh, conversely, but I'm talking about fundamentally. Mm. Like at the core, if you really get to talking to me for two hours or whatever, mm. I think you do ultimately find that at the basis of my thinking is something consistent that has to do with believing that most people are good. And conversely, what I've realized is that there's a lot of people out there that masquerade as optimists that are deeply, deeply pessimistic, that are deeply suspicious of other people, that 
assume malintent at all times, and I never do that. I really don't ever do that. Hmm. I for for the reader, I did raise my hand during that. Yeah. However, eh, it's only half true. No, no, no. I think I think that you're you're an optimist that also masquerades as a pessimist. You're you're just a little bit more. Um, you're a little goofier about your pessimism face. Oh yeah, and that's what snark is. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, well, so people can see your doughy interior a little bit easier. They see the doughy exterior. I don't know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, at this point they do. Fuck off. Okay. But yeah, I don't know. No, I mean like that's a that's a good real. I don't know. That's a I'm not not one to judge. Uh, you know, anything. But it's like it's a good self realization to have. Where it's I guess like, so. It, it's eh? it's it's not even. I think it's always good to learn something about yourself or like rather it's not even about that. I I, I hate the narcissistic language around this stuff. It's more like no. I, I, I would I'm more concerned about what is fundamental to my worldview. What yeah. is my ideology? That is the project. Figure it out. Uh-huh. And the more and more I think about that, I can't help. But at least at this point in my life, reluctantly say that I have a weird optimism. But at the same time, I can also tell you that we're about to enter like a technocratic corporate hellscape future that's going to suck and it is going to last the rest of your life. But it's hard for people to hear that and then understand that somewhere through that is hope. You can have both ideas in your head at once. Like that's what I want to communicate. Because I think a lot of people get this really narrow idea that you have to go one way or another. And much like oh, your lighters, yeah. I think it lowers the resolution of your thinking if you're across purposes in your own mind and not knowing it. But if you're across purposes and you try to articulate that, you're doing a service. Huh. So you're saying this is NPR now? This is a this is public radio? We're trying to inform the public? This is all things considered. <laughs> This is some things considered, <laughs> depending on the this day is, and how is, we feel. Yeah, this is some things half considered. Okay, uh, we've been going on too long. Yeah, you, I mean, you're cutting out half of this, yeah, right? Yeah, I think I'm cutting out a big majority of it. That's, that's why fine. I wanted to keep going. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Bye now. Bye-bye. <laughs>